final investigator I met with was Dr. Beth Carlin, who chatted with me in Chicago during the ASCO meeting and reviewed papers on ovarian cancer, beginning with a stunning presentation evaluating the PARP inhibitor Olaparib. There's been a great interest in the use of PARP inhibitors in treating ovarian cancer and breast cancer, and really the initial trials have focused on patients who have a germline BRCA mutation. And the previous data that had been presented at ASCO last year demonstrating response rates in a heavily pretreated group with single-agent olaparib on the order of 33% for ovary cancer. The trial that was presented this year at ASCO looked at the potential use of olaparib in a consolidation setting, in a maintenance setting, in a platinum-sensitive cohort. It was a placebo-controlled phase two randomized trial of women with recurrent serous ovarian cancer who had demonstrated platinum sensitivity to what they call their penultimate platinum. They had had previous treatments, at least two prior treatments, but they had to demonstrate a response or at least a partial response to platinum prior to entry onto this protocol. The patients were randomized. They did not have to have a BRCA mutation prior to entry onto the trial. And what was demonstrated and reported at ASCO here this year was that the women who were on the intervention arm, on the olaparib arm, had a progression-free interval almost four months longer than those on the placebo arm. The overall survival data were not yet mature and could not be presented here. However, this did demonstrate in a maintenance phase, it's an oral agent, it was generally well tolerated. The predominant toxicities noted were nausea and fatigue that were significantly more frequent in the olaparib-treated arm. However, the women had a significantly extended progression-free interval while on the olaparib. I think it brings up a number of issues with regards to the role of maintenance therapy in ovary cancer, what should the endpoints be, and what are the incremental improvements that are meaningful to patients' lives. I was a investigator on this trial and had a good number of women enrolled, so I did see the improvement in quality of life, in extended progression-free survival, and the tolerability of this. I guess we should mention, you said four months extension, but it was a 65% hazard rate, or hazard rate of 0.35, so it went from 3.7 to 8.3, which is pretty impressive. I think it's very impressive, especially in the setting of heavily pretreated patients. And I think it really brings us to question the potential role of this agent. There were other exciting trials with regards to maintenance, and even last year at ASCO, the role of bevacizumab as a maintenance treatment. And, you know, as we look at extending lives of women with ovarian cancer and our selection of agents and trying to really personalize and individualize the therapies, I think that this is an exciting addition to that armamentarium. It should be noted that the effect was seen in those women that had a BRCA mutation as well as those that did not. What fraction had BRCA mutations? 
I assume the minority. It is a minority. Two-thirds of the women who demonstrated response did not have BRCA mutations. Again, speaking to perhaps the role of homologous recombination repair as being characteristic of these high-grade serous tumors, there are data from the Cancer Genome Atlas Project demonstrating that perhaps up to half of high-grade serous tumors may have deficiencies in BRCA, either due to somatic mutations in the tumor itself or to epigenetic alterations and causing a promoter methylation that defunctionalizes the BRCA gene. Overall, what fraction of ovarian cancer occurs in people who are BRCA positive? About 10% of ovarian cancers, all comers, will have a BRCA mutation, 10 to 13%. There was an abstract opposed to presented here from Australia looking at a population-based study of all women with ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal cancers. They were non-mucinous epithelial ovarian cancers. And in that population-based study, a little over 13% of the women with ovarian cancer carried a BRCA mutation. And in fact, the 2011 NCCN guidelines recommend that genetic testing for BRCA mutations be offered to all women with epithelial ovarian cancer. You were talking about the tolerability of olaparib in this study. Sometimes it's kind of hard to look at data and kind of figure out what really happens, but you had patients on this study. You know, subjectively, as you watch them, what did you see? I was impressed with early on there was a degree of nausea, and I think that that is a very real toxicity. It often did need to be managed pharmacologically. However, over time, especially as they seemed to respond, the nausea became very, very manageable, especially by the second month or so on the trial. And folks were able to live a very, very full life. One patient traveled to China, another to Italy. I actually have a patient from an earlier Olaparib trial that's been on the drug for over two years. She was a patient with stage 4 primary peritoneal cancer who has a BRCA2 mutation who truly had carcinomatosis requiring TPN. And she had a complete response and has remained on the drug, now able to maintain her usual life. So it is a very active agent in ovarian cancer. Where it will fit into a standard of care is yet to be determined, but I think that these were very exciting data for these heavily pre-treated platinum-sensitive patients in this maintenance setting. I was thinking about, I think it was a year ago when Karen Gelman presented some data on Olaparib. That was the first time I saw, you know, responses, a significant response rate in patients with APRAC mutations. It was kind of like an eye-opener. And now you have this study with pretty impressive results. Where do you think things are heading with this agent? I think that we are looking for better markers of BRCA deficiency. And indeed, it's not just BRCA, it's DNA repair. And as we were saying, approximately half of serous ovarian cancers seem to have genetic alterations or epigenetic alterations that cause deficiency in these DNA repair pathways. In fact, it may 
spill over into other cancers, responses being seen in pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, even endometrial cancers, melanoma, those that seem to have a deficiency either in BRCA due to an inherited germline mutation or to some other somatic alteration that causes dysfunction in that DNA repair pathway. But even other genes, such as ATM, that are perhaps more associated with breast cancer and others, really extend the potential reach of this class of agents. It's really vexing in oncology. You see agents come out, you know, crizotinib in lung cancer and TDM1 in breast cancer. And docs hear about cases like your patients that you just talked about, and they're like, I want to use this. I mean, and brings in the question of how much data we need to be able to use it. Would you like to be able to have this drug available? And do you think it will be in the near future? Or do we need more data? I think that we do need more data. However, for patients with BRCA-associated cancers, we clearly have seen a significant signal as well as those without. Your question has so many aspects to it, and it's very provocative. In terms of ovarian cancer and having the drug widely available, one needs to try to better understand, is progression-free survival an appropriate endpoint versus overall survival? And in ovarian cancers, it's a really especially difficult question because these patients often go on so many subsequent treatments that having an OS endpoint is often difficult to have. So I do think it will be moving into a phase three trial setting that would allow it to have a registration trial for possible approval. For all the successes with regards to responses to Olaparib, again, the individuals do fail at some point. And the question with regards to tumor regrowth when it stops, to future chemosensitivity, to other side effects. There have been reports of myelodysplastic syndromes and leukemias, again, very rare occurrences. But before there's widespread use and approval of the drug, I do think we need to have a little bit more data with regards to its effectiveness and its side effect profile. So that really kind of leads right into the issue of bevacizumab. It's been pretty much on people's mind now again for about a year, and we had another data set presented here at ASCO that should add to the discussion a lot, the OCEAN study. Can you talk about that? The OCEAN study was different than the GOG218 data presented or the ICON-7 data presented last year. In the OCEANS trial, women were accrued who had recurrent ovarian cancer in a platinum-sensitive setting. These patients were then treated with carboplatin and gemcitabine with or without the addition of bevacizumab. It was really quite striking in this recurrent setting to see the significant improvement in progression-free interval. Again, a four-month improvement going from 8.4 months in the cohort that got the platinum gemcitabine alone versus 12.4 months in those that had the addition of bevacizumab. And here the hazard ratio is 0.48. Although the overall survival data are not mature, once again, we see a very significant improvement in the progression-free survival in those patients who received the bevacizumab. It really, I think, brings to question not so much the effectiveness of bevacizumab, for ovarian cancer, but what is the right time, the right dose, and how long, how much, and who 
are really the questions that need to be answered. I guess another one would be whether alone or with chemo. And I think, again, that is a very important question, and it gets to patient selection as maintenance therapy and when it should be done. And again, the questions of when you stop bevacizumab, what happens to that tumor biology? Do we see rapid tumor regrowth when we stop bevacizumab? And is that part of the reason why in the colon cancer, in the breast cancer, and many of the other tumor sites have been studied longer with this agent? While we see an initial progression-free survival advantage, the overall survival curves really do converge. Indeed, the update of ICON-7 that was presented, again, this is an upfront treatment. It's a phase three randomized trial in newly diagnosed ovarian cancer patients getting platinum and paclitaxel with bevacizumab. There was an update presented at the meeting, basically still showing no overall survival advantage. It was different, of course, than the GOG-218 data that was presented in terms of the patients that were entered into that trial. There were some early-stage patients who were at high risk, also the dose of bevacizumab and the length of the maintenance therapy. As one looks at the body of data surrounding bevacizumab these days, I think we probably can say we shouldn't use it in folks who have early-stage disease, that individuals either with suboptimal primary disease seem to see a significant progression-free survival advantage, or those with resist-measurable recurrent disease. So when you actually have bulky tumor versus an, perhaps an optimal group, bevacizumab seems to improve the responses And I think both OCEANS and the analyses done from ICON-7 with those suboptimal patients are really coming around that. What's also been published, of course, with bevacizumab has to do with the costs for year of life saved and the significant increase in costs that are associated, at least with the GOG treatment regimen, which was 15 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks, and going out into the maintenance phase. That's for a year. That was for another year after that. And really, cost per year of life save of over $200,000 in the arm, which really exceeds the usual standards that have been accepted. But I am very excited about the potential role of bevacizumab in this recurrent setting. And how do you use it, if at all, in your practice outside of protocol settings, specifically to use it alone or with chemo, or do you use it at all? I do use bevacizumab outside of protocol settings. There continues to be some difficulties with reimbursement, so that needs to be individualized. Ovarian cancer is a very interesting disease biology, of course, with much of a capillary leak-type syndrome leading to the ascites and the pleural effusions. And bevacizumab is a very effective agent in controlling the effusions and the ascites. That said, I most frequently use it in combination. And the choice of the chemo agent, which I combine it with, depends on many patient-specific characteristics. Using it with the metronomic low-dose cyclophosphamide as an oral agent and then the IV every third week bevacizumab is a very well-tolerated, and I've seen great effectiveness with that regimen. And I will say that's the regimen I found most likely to be reimbursed by insurers. 
You mentioned, I think alluded to the issue in terms of ascites and the vascular effects. Every investor I meet with, I always ask about, you know, have you seen any cases where people who had really bad recurrent ascites that the bevacizumab seemed to help? Yes, I've seen it help many times. Bevacizumab single agent being able to lead to the resolution of ascites. Taxanes themselves also have effect on much of that capillary leak. And often I have combined bevacizumab with even Lotus Weekly Paclitaxel and seen effectiveness with that, combining it with every other week Doxel at a low dose, and really do see, again, anecdotally, very significant responses, and especially when effusions or ascites are a part of the given clinical picture. 